distance uh, from you, uh, but also um, here, here's the thing. I'm going to preach, I'm going to preach hard this morning, and I want you to listen hard. I'm going to lean in, I want you to lean in, and then we'll all take a nap later on this afternoon. How's that? Father, we ask you that you would come and be with us as we now preach your word, Lord. We don't view that lightly um, as some minor insignificant thing. Lord, we pray for your presence as the word is preached. Help, help me as the preacher, help, help us, all of us as listeners to hear your word, Lord, and to be quick quicken our hearts to respond to your spirit's work in us this morning. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I just realized I did it again. I skipped Christian this morning, the reading of God's word. Would you please stand with me? I'll do it. <laughs> We're in Samuel. We're going to preach the entire chapter, uh, chapter 4, 1 Samuel 4. Uh, but for the reading this morning, I'm going to read the first three verses. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. What's interesting is that's the last we're going to hear from Samuel for a number of chapters, which is kind of interesting. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the, on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It's a good question. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come up among us, and save us from the power of our enemies. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Title this morning is Glory Gone. In Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Professor Jones seeks to keep the Nazis from gaining the Ark and thus gaining the power of the Ark. In the movie... Marcus Brody famously says, quote, The Bible speaks of the ark leveling mountains and laying waste in entire regions. An army that carries the ark before it is invincible. Marcus Brody clearly had not read 1 Samuel chapter 4. The author of Samuel has had a microscope on two families thus far. Elkanah, his wife Hannah, and their child Samuel, the one family, and the other family being Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They are the priests in Israel. And it's now as if the author is going to widen the view, if you will, pull the, pull the lens out and help us to see. So that was, that was focused on two families. Now we're going to look broadly at Israel. And that's what's going to happen over these next chapters. As he widens our view to include all of Israel, 
what the author does now is unpacks war between Israel and Philistines. The Philistines and Israel have a history of war. They've become a powerful enemy of Israel in the days, well, back in the days of Judges that we keep referring to. It was during the days of Judges that God raised up two judges in particular to bring judgment, right? Um, and do battle against the Philistines, one being Deborah and the other being Samson. You remember the end of the story of Samson. Samson brings down the Philistine temple by destroying the pillars, right? And bringing destruction to himself and the Philistines. All right, so that's all kind of Israel history. And they've got this history with the Philistines. But here's the thing. We could read these next chapters and you can read them historically, right? But they're, they're not, they don't exist just for history reasons, right? They're not here just for our historical benefit. They're here for a theological reason. There's something God would have for us here to understand about him and his activity amongst his people. Yes, this information um, is historical, These are historical events that have taken place, and we can learn about the history. But what I'm saying is is it's theological. And we need to see that God has raised up an enemy. God has raised up an enemy, the Philistines, to usher in judgment towards his people, which God has promised through his covenant, hear me, of grace. Gordon Ketty writes, Israel's relationship with the Philistines was a barometer of their relationship with God. When they experienced defeat, they saw it as the withdrawal of divine favor. So let's dive into our text here. Point number one, sometimes it's easy to oversimplify the solution to a profound problem. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek and the Philistines drew up in line against Israel And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? God's people have been defeated for covenant reasons. They've been defeated. Now, when we think of the covenant, we typically think of the covenant of grace, right? Isn't it a covenant of grace? How can a covenant of grace be matched with defeat like this. We usually interpret the thought of covenant of grace to be the covenant of blessing, and it was that, but it wasn't only that. It was also the covenant of judgment, both of which his blessing and his judgment is the covenant of grace. Verse 3, they get it partially correct. Why has the Lord done this? It's a good question, Israel. Why has the Lord done this? It's an appropriate question. Here's the the problem, though. They ask why, but they don't ask the Lord why. 
They don't seek the Lord here for the answer to the appropriate question. We often have the similar question. And we don't seek the Lord for the appropriate question. They didn't seek, they didn't, they didn't ask Samuel. At this point, Samuel is what? He's, he is the, the prophet of the Lord. They didn't refer back to what they would have had of God's word and the covenant. They would have had access to what is covenant um, requirements. They, they did not seek the Lord. They did not seek for us. We don't seek the Lord. We don't go to his word, right? And the result is they came up with an oversimplified solution to a very profound problem that they were walking through. Rather than seeking the Lord, often we come up with our own solutions. And they're oversimplified solutions to the profound problem of sin. Theirs is a problem of sin. Ours is often a problem of sin. And we like these kind of puny, insufficient solutions. For them in their day, they, they said, well, we have the ark. We have the ark of the covenant. We have the object, the very object that is to remind them of God's covenant promises to them. We've got that. Where was that? We got to dust it off. We got to get it out. Where God has spoken, keep covenant with me and I will be with you. That was represented in this covenant, this, this ark of the covenant. It represented the presence of the Lord. It represented, well, it's the ark of the covenant. Meaning, see the ark, think covenant. But the people have rejected God. And so their simple solution in the midst of their rejection of God, let's pull the ark out. Let's, let's throw some ark at our enemy. Let's get God, pull him out of our back pocket, throw a little God activity at our problem, a little hocus pocus, a little rabbit theology, rabbit foot theology, a little genie in a bottle. That's what's going on here. It's the Ark of the Covenant. As they would consider, well, that's what our ancestors did, right? They, they got the Ark. And they brought the Ark into battle. Numbers 10 says, And whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. Pull out the old ace in the hole. We have the power of God at our disposal. Just got to bring the golden box into battle with us. And their answer, I'm saying to us, is not that unlike our answer today. They sought to throw some token religion at a profound problem. Rather than repent, rather than be brought into right relationship with their covenant God, brought into true relationship, they decide, let's do token religion, throw a golden box at our profound problem. It's an oversimplified solution. 
You see, church, God is not interested in being our token God. To march out there into the battlefield of our life and the difficult circumstances that we face, how easy it is for us to march out our little token religion. Throw a little money in the offering. Go to church a little bit. Get, get, get really radical and be baptized. Do some token religious things. How sad it is we think that our little petty efforts can manipulate God as if he's saying, wow, looky there. Looky, Tim Tim threw $50, $100, $1,000, whatever, whatever amount. Look, look as if God, we suddenly have God's attention by a little token of religion. God isn't interested in our token religion. He doesn't want your token offering. He wants your very life. He wants your very heart. He wants your submission. He wants you to be a wholehearted follower of him. To be my disciple, right? Lay down your life. Take up your cross and follow me. The businessman who recognizes, you know, business hasn't been going so good. I better straighten out my life a bit, clean up my act so God can bless the business. Token religion. The politician who recognizes, you know, the polls aren't going so well for me amongst evangelical voters. I better toss some scriptures out there to pacify token religion. The student who is afraid of failing the class and determines to go, to go to church because, wow, it's finals week, token religion. Life is defeating you, and so you turn up the dial, the religious dial, the God dial. You've got my attention now, Lord. We've been defeated by our enemy. Now I'm going to perform for you a bit. God's not interested in our token religion. This person doesn't want to seek God. They didn't want to seek God. It's clearly they, they didn't seek God. They didn't want to. We often don't want to submit to God. They simply wanted to control God. That's what token religion does. They want a God they can control and one that, they can, that, that will simply give them what they want, so they can go about their life ignoring him further while receiving his blessings until some future date where we're in trouble again, get the golden box out. They're not interested in having a God. They just want the blessings they can receive from God. The religious token is a cry for success rather than submission. A religious token is a step towards personal happiness rather than God-honoring holiness. Driven by what God can do for me rather than God, I worship you with my life. In this case, God is not God. We are. If I say the right things, if I do the right things, if I get what I want, 
then it's all good. So Israel, why not seek the Lord for your legitimate question? Why has the Lord brought this enemy upon us and defeated us? It's a good question. Why not seek God? Why not review the covenant? And why not repent? And their answer is, no, we've got this. Get the golden box. It worked. Worked for grandpa. Right? It worked for, when you read about that, Trinity, not interested in token religion. Not interested. Throw the box at it. Not interested in manipulative evangelism tactics. I want, I believe we want to see a sovereign move of God in our day. Do you have a box of sorts, a superstition, or do you have God? See, what I've described and what they're doing is more what we would call today is karma than it is with gospel Christianity. I'm not interested, just announce it, not interested in a gimmicky 24 hours of prayer. That's not why we're doing this. Not interested in saying, Here, here's a gimmick. What if we prayed for 24 hours? Here's what we're simply doing with this. We're asking for people who have a heart for God in these dark days in which we live to say, God, will you come and move? So we gather and we want to pray. We're not here to attempt to manipulate God as if he can be manipulated. We're not here to manipulate people. It's not why we're here. We're not here to do some trendy this or that. Just want to say, sovereign God, almighty God, come and move. Reveal yourself to your church. Show us where we need to repent. And church, fall on our face and repent. Verse four, things get worse. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. The two sons, the the ones that we heard already, the two worthless fellows. The two men who are to be mediating for Israel, the two, two guys who have made worship to become a matter of contempt of God. Those guys. The guys who should be leading the people in repentance. They are leading in this rabbit foot theology. Richard Phillips writes, seeing the ark, Israel's hosts should have remembered God's law, considered their own sin, and cast themselves upon God's mercy, symbolized through the mercy seat atop the ark, where the sacrificial lamb's blood, looking forward to the cross of Jesus Christ, would be sprinkled to cover Israel's sin before God's sight. Instead, Israel was so presumptuous of God's favor that the people saw no danger in having the two law-breaking priests as escorts for God's holy ark. 
indifferent. Verse 5, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Do it like grandpa did, right? Jericho, march around, make the shout. Hey, it worked before. We got to do all the things that worked before rather than seek the Lord. So sometimes we have an oversimplified solution to a profound problem, the problem of sin. Secondly, sometimes the enemy has a better theology than the people of God. Verse 6, And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Ha! They should be afraid. They're reading their history, Israel history, better than Israel is. For they said, a God. Now, they obviously get this portion wrong, but a God, not, not a God, the God. The God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? It's a good question. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. So their token religion, right, didn't work. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for there fell Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So the enemy gets it right here, or at least partially right here. We're not going to dice all that out, but verse 9, they muster up the strength of their army, and they defeat Israel again. And it's a funny thing how often people today throw the rabbit's foot theology out there. They throw the token religion out there. They throw it at their problem, right? I've got some problems. Let me throw this out there. And the result is further defeat. And then they say, and perhaps you've said it, probably most of us have said it. Well, what's the use? What's the use then? Why bother serving God if it didn't work? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? It didn't work. I tried God. I tried God. It didn't work. My life's still a mess. I could imagine that going on in Israel. Well, we tried that. We, we took the ark out there. It didn't work. Might as well go on, live like we want to, and just go about ignoring God, which is exactly what they do in the following chapters. Trinity, you can do the right thing with the wrong heart. They were doing the right thing. They just didn't have a heart. They were doing right things. They were doing religious things, but their heart was completely disengaged. And because it's the right thing, we think, well... Before, I was doing the wrong thing. 
Now I'm doing the right things. That's what God wants, isn't it? And the answer is no. He wants more than right activity. He wants a right heart. He wants a right heart that drives right activity. You see, doing right things with a wrong heart will only last as long as you get what you want. The moment you don't get what you want, you're going to step back and go, well, what's the point? Which is the moment you stop doing right things. Because you're doing right things for the wrong reason. They did a right thing. They just wanted to defeat their enemy. A heart of worship was far from them. When you do the right things from the right heart, it doesn't matter if you get what you want or not. That's, that's not the point. You don't do what you do to get something from God. You do what you do because of all that you've already received from God. And so you do what you do out of a heart of worship rather than a heart of let me manipulate God as if we could. Well, the right thing with the wrong heart led to the ark has been captured. An absolute low point in Israel's history. Number three, sometimes things get worse before they get better. We've already been unpacking that, but look at verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting in his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. We'll come back to that. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, this is interesting, 30,000 people have died. Now he's going to say, your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And then he adds, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God being captured, that's when Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. The man was old and heavy. We'll come back to that. And he judged Israel 40 years. Eli's heart was trembling. Why? Why is it trembling, Eli? You're bringing out the ark. You've got the ark. Why would it be trembling if you've got your, well, you got your, your God in your back pocket and you can just usher him out when you want to? The enemy's afraid. Why would you be trembling? They get it, you don't. You've got all the loud shouting. You've got all the pieces here. And yet, he's trembling. Hear me. 
religious activity will never leave you assured. It can't do it. It won't do it. You can throw all the good activity out there and you will remain unassured. Are you doing enough? Is there something else? Is there something we're missing? Is there something else to this battlefield we should be doing? Eli, why are you trembling here? Religious activity will leave you like Eli. Is God seeing it? Do I have his attention? Religious activity will either leave you proud, what a great job you're doing with all this right activity, or it will leave you anxious. I'm not getting it done. And I know it. You'll either be proud or guilty. The psalmist laments about Psalms, about, about all of this in Psalm 78. Or it says, he, he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity. Delivered his power. He delivered the ark, which represented the presence of the Lord, into captivity. His glory to the hand of the foe. It's exactly what's happening here. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. You see, the people thought, oh, we'll march the ark out there and now God will defend his honor. Send the golden box. And here's the thing. They were right and they were wrong. God did defend his honor. Not the way they expected. He defended his honor by bringing judgment on his people because of their stiff-necked refusal to repent and to come to him in worship. God absolutely defended his honor, not in the way they presumed. God defended his honor by sending the Philistines in to destroy them and bring about judgment on idolatrous Israel. Let's pick up in verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law gets worse. The wife of Phinehas was pregnant, about to give birth. So this is Eli's daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, pregnant, about to give birth. When she heard the news of the ark that God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, so she's going to die here in childbirth. The woman attending her said to her, do not be afraid for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Eli is crushed by his own weight. The ark of God has now been captured and Hear me, you're not going to catch this in the English. At least that's what my study is showing me. There's irony here that's not obvious in the English translation. The word heavy and the word glory are very similar words, both in sound and in meaning in the Hebrew language. They both carry the meaning, heavy, glory, of weightiness. 
glory is weighty. Heavy, well, it's weighty. Remember back to chapter 2, Eli's sons are introduced to us. How? They were worthless men. They were, in other words, non-weighty men. They had no substance. They were lightweights. They were worthless men in regard to the things of the Lord. No substance to these guys, no weightiness, but their sin, what? Was weighty. It was very great. Or we could say heavy due to their contempt, their disregard for things of God's glory, which is weighty. Tracking? Their sin was literally heavy, literally weighty, in that they literally ate all the fat, remember a couple weeks ago, all the fat of the sacrifice. Chapter 2, verse 29, it says, Eli was also fattening himself on the, on the, um, on the fat meat. Let me read it. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons? Why do you give weight to your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? (coughs) Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who Honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me, what shall be lightly esteemed. They made themselves weighty in their own eyes, and God esteemed them lightly. Chapter 4, verse 18, Eli dies. He is old, and it tells us he's heavy. He died under the weight of his own glory weight. Then his daughter-in-law also dies in labor, but before she dies, what? She names her child Ichabod because the glory has departed from Israel. Ichabod, glory, gone. Or no God weightiness in Israel. Done. Over. Finished. But no actually not finished at all. Not the end of the story. It's the end of the chapter. Keep reading your Bible because it's not finished until Jesus says it's finished. Number four, sometimes we need to hit the refresh button on our theology of the cross. When an enemy nation defeated their enemy, they would take the rival God. That's why the Philistines referred to their Ark of the Cup as the gods. That's what they would do. They would bring gods. Bring those gods. Capture their gods. Bring them into your shrine of gods. We'll add them, but they'll be submissive to our God, right? That's why we're going to have chapter 5 next week. Christian will be preaching chapter 5, and they're going to put Israel's God the Ark of the Covenant, in submission, but in the shrine of Dagon, their God. That's a fun chapter. Come back next week. 
So they just want to add to their shrine of gods, and they'd place that god in submission to their gods. When the people rejected God, what? What do you often see in the Old Testament is that the people of God were brought into exile. This is really amazing here. The people are not brought into exile here. They were not captured and made slaves to the Philistines. Living in exile was horrific. And what I'm saying is it's amazing that they were the defeated enemy, but they don't go into exile, but the object that represents the presence of the Lord goes into exile. That's stunning. Listen, that's gospel speak. The presence of the Lord went into exile rather than the people themselves. That's crazy. What's going on here? Hear me. On the cross, what's amazing is that our sins demand that we be thrown into exile, which is hell. That we would be dealt with according to our sin. But here's what the cross speaks No, instead, Christ went into exile, death on our behalf. He died the death that my, your sins deserved. He was placed on a cross, which had the appearance of being in submission to his enemy. It appeared that way in the Old Testament. You'll see next week. Who submits to who? At the cross, it appears as if Christ is in submission to the enemy. He died. He was buried. It is finished. And then he rose from the grave. Out of the exile. The tomb is empty. What a savior. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Hit the refresh button on our cross theology. It's a dark, extreme, dark day in Israel. It is Ichabod. Glory gone. We're done here. No, we're not. Because it's all pointing us to Christ, and it's not finished until he says it's finished. So friends, don't come to God today with some silly list of token religious things, token religious techniques to in some way sway God to give you what you want. Come to him in humble repentance. Come to him in a heart of worship and service and saying, God, I offer you my life. Come with a humble cry for God's forgiveness and mercy in grace. Again, Richard Phillips writes, Indeed, it was because of the failure of Israel's priests, such as Hophni and Phinehas, that God sent his own son to save us from our sins and restore us to his blessing. It was a day of Ichabod, but the failure of Israel's priests points to a priest who is to come. His name is not Ichabod. His name is Emmanuel, 
God with us. The glory departed. Glory gone. Ichabod. End of story. No, it's not. The glory came, not in a gold box, but in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember on the cross, Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Meaning, why have you removed your glory from me? The glory departed. The earth quaked. The skies went dark. And the Savior died. And when the glory departed, forgiveness of sin was being offered. And when he spoke the words on the cross, it is finished. That is to say, your sins have been atoned for. You have been forgiven. Glory to God. In the highest. For God, chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, hear these words, of the glory of God, the weightiness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Feel the weightiness of that glory. He died, rose from the grave, ascended to the Father, and then what? He sent his spirit to live in us. He sent his spirit not to live in a gold box. He placed the weight of his glory, his very presence now lives in us who are in Christ Jesus. This this is why token religion is so contemptible. This is why we slay the dragon of sin in our lives. This is why we come singing and clapping and as Christian exhorted us, lifting our hands to the Lord. This is why we shout before him. It's not a token religion. It's a response. Our God went into exile on our behalf that we might be saved this day. This is why we seek to live in a manner, how does he put it? Worthy of the gospel. He fulfilled all that the ark of God represented. Christ did. If the worship team would join me. Christ fulfilled all that that ark of God represented. Sure, it's cool. Archaeologically speaking, people search for the ark. Kind of cool, neat. But friend, no ark is needed. No ark is needed. A better presence is available for the Christian this day. That's the whole point of the cross. Not that the cross becomes our new rabbit foot theology. No. We come to the cross confessing sin and trusting in his sacrifice on the cross. They should have seen the ark and hit the deck. It should have caused them to remember covenant it should have caused them to remember all that God had done and who he is in Israel. They should have fallen on their faces in repentance and in worship and the weight of his glory. Their shouts shouldn't have been token religion. There should have been shouts of repentance, crying out to God. 
and shouts of worship for God's forgiveness and his covenant love. But no, you've got, look back at verse 3. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may come among us. That it may come. Let it save us. Go grab the box. Let it save us. Go get the God machine thing. Rather than the very presence of the Lord drives us to repentance, calling out to him, Almighty God, save us. Would you stand with me? God, we don't want to come today with some token religious even now as we close, religious token song that you religiously do week in and week out at a religious service. Lord, we want to wholly worship you. We want to, in these moments, be aware of the weightiness of your glory. Lord, we want to say, well, with lifted hands, we want to proclaim you went into exile I should have gone into exile Lord but you have saved us from our sin and for those who are here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ today is a great day to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins to stop with this puny silly oversimplified solution of your token religion of doing good right things because they're right things it's fooled you to think that God's impressed or that you're able to manipulate God no come to him in repentance and worship pray that you do that this day God would you help us let's lift our voices